Welcome to the Lead with Empathy podcast. I am your host, Holly Logan, and here we are going to have meaningful and hopefully some fun conversations about motherhood, parenthood, illness, disease, physical and mental wellness, nutrition, and beyond. And as the title implies, we lead here with empathy. With that said, let's dive into the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I bring you Markella. I had the opportunity to interview Markella from across the ocean as she's in Greece. Today's topic is going to be focused on a lot of things, but mainly identity talk in motherhood. It was an amazing conversation. I am so excited for this one. We get into this idea too that we've been given this quote unquote privilege as a woman historically to do it all, right? Have a career, be a fantastic mother. And yet sometimes we can't. And a lot of women struggle to find that balance. I know I certainly did and I still do at times. So we're going to talk about motherhood and identity. I think you're going to find her so articulate and how she speaks. I love her voice. I could listen to her all day long. We also talk about deeper trauma and she also talks about how to use mom brain to our advantage. And I think this is a really cool topic. This is a conversation that I think is going to bring you just a ton of value in your life. Markella, as a background, she holds a bachelor's of science in psychology and a master's in clinical counseling psychology. She actually started in the cognitive behavioral therapy track, but was drawn to more integrative approaches. She also holds a special ed postgrad certification as well as a child counseling one. So she worked in the special education sector parallel to counseling for 15 years. But her work led her to notice the inordinate load that mothers are expected to carry and the lack of emotional support they receive. This led her to pivoting in her business, and now she has her Mama Rising Coach and Facilitator Certification, and she's also currently doing a training focused on pre- and postpartum women to enrich her skills even further. She is offering coaching sessions, and I will be linking things in the show notes about her, her website, her social media, a new video series on motherhood she's working on, all exciting things that I honestly have on my list to be a part of. I hope that Markella will remain part of my life for a long time. So let's welcome her to Lead with Empathy. All right. Welcome, Markella. This is uh, beautiful. We were able to connect from across the world today. You have given me a whole list of topics we could go into. So I have a few pointed questions for you that caught my eye. So we'll jump right in because you we were just chatting before, actually, and you said you love to talk about identity and you find that women love to talk about identity, why we feel lost in motherhood and getting rid of the guilt we feel and missing out on ourselves. Can you talk about that? And honestly, do you think this is new or something that mothers have felt for generations, but now that more women work out of the home, we feel and see the effects of that more? Well, the concept of identity loss in motherhood is certainly not a new phenomenon, but it is increasingly visible due to sociocultural shifts. As more women are working outside the home and engaged in diverse roles, the topic has moved from hushed discussions from the past to public platforms. Motherhood has always been a complex journey, often shown as the epitome of selflessness. However, it's important to acknowledge that mothers are individuals first with personal goals. We have ambitions and identities that are separate from our roles and our identities as caregivers. What exacerbates this crisis today is the societal pressure to have it all to be the ideal mother, right, while also excelling in career, maintaining our relationship, taking care of ourselves. So when these expectations start to collide, it's easy to feel like you're falling short, generating guilt over missing one's old self and pre-motherhood freedoms. Mothers from previous generations, I would say, may have felt similar emotions, but they likely lacked the platform and the social acceptance to openly discuss these experiences. But one thing I've been learning about 
much more recently, and I'm very, very interested in, is about the feminist movement, which was and is a great cause. But what so many years of oppression and discrimination did was to take us to the other end of the pendulum, where when the feminist movement began, we felt we had to prove ourselves to show men that we were capable. In order to do this, we embarked on a journey to demonstrate how we can do it all. And that became our badge of honor. Our pride was based on the fact that we could work hard, climb the ranks and take care of the home and be perfect mothers. So before the feminist movement, this was not as strong of an urge for lack of opportunity. Really, we were not allowed to do much outside the home. So I'm not saying that as if it's a good thing. But I'm just explaining why the identity crisis is probably felt stronger today than it was before. Yes, we vocalize it more, but it is more prominent due to the societal shift. It's really interesting you said that about the feminist movement, because I've had conversations with friends about that. I felt at a young age that we were almost pushed to you need to go to college and you need to do X, Y and Z because you have these privileges now. And for a lot of us, we just wanted to be mothers. And I obviously value my education. I loved going to school. But at the same time, I always knew I wanted to be a mother. And I feel like that would be a hard conversation to have with a high school student of, okay, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And someone would look at you and say, well, I want to be a mother. I almost feel like that would be frowned upon. Does that make sense? If an 18 year old said, well, I, you know, someday in the next 10 years, I want to be a mother. I feel like that would have been frowned upon and that you have to have goals and careers. Yes, it's definitely frowned upon. And and you are, in some cases, it feels as if you are a shame to the female sex if you do not want to climb the ranks and if you don't want to use all these opportunities that were given to you by the feminist movement to show men that we're definitely capable and we're not supposed to be locked down in a house just being birthing machines. The The problem here, in my humble opinion, is that We've taken privilege and we've made it a must. So the feminist movement is a gift. It gave us the privilege to be able to choose. But we've taken it to the extent where it feels like if we choose to appreciate a slower life, uh, a life in the home, if that is what fulfills us, then this is frowned upon by mainly women who feel like we're not taking advantage of the privileges that we have and we're not proving that we really can do it all. I've been reading a very nice book about this. This is this was a bit more intense in our mother's generation when the feminist movement was much stronger. It was getting the heat. It was it was building on, momentum. Thank you. Building momentum. So it was at its climax. It was much more intense for our mothers. It's a little bit less intense right now, but I do get where you're coming from. I do feel the same way that sometimes it's as if like, yeah, since you can study, you should study and you can think about motherhood later. And I I know it's not to down anyone's desire. Also, there are women who don't desire that slow life and want the success in education. And some can find that balance of being mothers and having a successful career, but everyone's different. So I asked that question because I, I have thought about that because we didn't have social media, you know, 10, 20, 30 40 years ago. So I was just curious if we knew anything about how mothers were feeling that pressure then. But now we obviously, if you sit and scroll social media all day long, you're going to see and you're going to compare yourself constantly and you're going to question your identity. Yeah. But it also comes from our own mothers. So even even now that we have social media, I think for our generation, at least, 
it came from our mothers as well, who wanted to make sure it was very well-intentioned. They wanted to make sure that we got things that they didn't get a chance to have. And they felt like their generation went to great lengths, which it did, to give us these privileges and these choices. And they felt it deep in their bones that I wasn't allowed to do these things. And now I am, but I have lost, in a sense, lost in quotations, lost so many years of not having this opportunity, but you have it. It's your birthright. That's what we fought for. And so there's this unconscious passing of the need for you as a woman that now has these privileges to actualize them. And so then we kind of miss the individual factor that you're saying, do I even want kids or do I even want a career? Do I want both? Do I not? Just because I can do it all, do I really have to? Is now, the that's question. really beautiful to think about because even this is a little different because this coming from my dad, my dad was the son of an immigrant and he said at one point, in my life, he had two choices. He could go to the military or he could do a trade. And my dad wasn't a scholar type man. And those were his only choices. But my dad's actually an amazing musician as well. And he's like, I can't imagine, you know, in your day and age, if I could have studied music where it would have brought me. And so I think that kind of impacted me of like, well, I do have this opportunity, Dan, and I have to take advantage of it. So it's interesting you mentioned so I feel like that issue with identity extends to how we foster and care for our relationships, specifically with our partners, too, because when we're overwhelmed as mothers, then we give everything to our children. And yet we're trying to be good partners and spouses or friends. And that's a really hard balance. How do you see this impact women and their relationships if they're having struggles with their identity? Yeah, the identity struggle definitely spills into other domains of life. And one of them is relationships, probably especially our relationships, because in essence, what we were saying before is our relationship to ourselves. And then, of course, it affects the relationships with others. So there's a constant juggle that we see between being a mother, a partner, a friend, an individual, a child, right? A, a daughter to our own parents. And it can feel very overwhelming. This often leads to reprioritizing relationships with children usually taking the forefront. So while this may seem and usually becomes necessary, it can strain partnerships and friendships over time if steps are not taken in order to counteract the fact that priorities have and need to be shifted. Moreover, for many women, the identity of being a mother becomes so consuming that it sometimes eclipses the other roles they occupy, particularly their role as a partner. And that is because motherhood is not just another additional role. I very consciously use the word identity when I talk about motherhood, and I try to avoid, even though sometimes it slips, using the word role, because the difference between role and identity is that in the case of the latter, other roles start to revolve around and be affected by the identity which sits at the center. Motherhood is an identity. And when it comes into play, and that is not necessarily just when I've given birth for the first time. That is also from the minute that I start thinking of conceiving, from the moment of conception during pregnancy. So going back to relationships, then it would be irrational to expect that they would just remain the same. This expectation may be coming not only from our partner, but from us as well. And in itself, it is enough to cause misunderstandings about the effort being made. For instance, the partner expects that it will all go back to normal soon. And so if that expectation is there, they're in for a very rude awakening. 
which to them, you know, feels like a rejection. We've been taught by society as well. And what we see on social media, like you pointed out before, that things are bounced back to normal. These are the kind of messages that we get. And so we, we also kind of hear that a strong relationship will stand strong if a baby comes in. If the foundations were off, then this is probably the reason why. This probably means that there were things that were happening in the past that you didn't resolve. And then you had the kid. You know, it kind of indicates that the partnership was off from the get go. And so in that sense, if we believe that as mothers and we start to see our partnership deassemble, that expectation that, oh, it should have been, it's probably foundational, creates a pressure that there were issues. We create more of an issue there than there had to be. So all of this can lead to feelings of emotional distance impacting the relational dynamics. A key part of navigating this is open communication, coupled with self-awareness and setting clear boundaries. I talk about it in my free mini video series, if any of your listeners are interested. And I just love helping couples get through this rough patch. It's not something I necessarily intended on doing when I started my coaching, motherhood coaching business, but it came up as a request from a couple of mothers I was working with. And it feels very aligned in my work, seeing how integral it is and the impact that motherhood has on our partnerships and then our children and then the entire family system. It's overall. really interesting. I've, I've reflected on that before when I've known my, my now husband. We've been together for almost 18 years. So I have known him since I was 14. And that has been a blessing and a curse because we grew up essentially together and did college and did all of those things, became adults together. But then becoming parents together, you would think hearing that, oh, well, you know everything about each other and you know how your quirks and everything. So parenthood would just be a snap, right? We've reflected on it, too, because it was such a new experience for both of us. Regardless of how well I know my husband and a lot of our parenthood ideas aligned, it did not make our transition into parenthood any easier. And I reflect on myself a lot of postpartum. A lot of it was, there were a lot of factors, don't get me wrong, but was poor communication. When I think back to when my first child was born and where we struggled, it was poor communication. And I took on the motherhood role, identity very strongly. My first child was almost six years ago, but I can reflect on it now of when I became a mother, I had that identity of I have to do it all. Like it is my responsibility. Every feed, every diaper, every need is my responsibility. And a lot of that came from now again, reflecting from my mother because she's very much the same way because of her own traumas. And it's really interesting when you put those pieces together for yourself. And it sounds like that's a lot of the work that you do with families. Is that correct too? Like not only giving these tips and strategies, but starting to pull out of people like these are the reasons and the patterns generationally that you or I see in your family. And these are the reasons you do these things. And it's not to make someone feel shameful. Um, and it's not that you can't fix it. It's just a real part of you. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. The example that you're you're setting is perfect, actually. You, you're describing the situation exactly as it is because you could be with your partner for many, many years and know them very well. But because nothing else in our lives, except for adolescence, probably is such a huge shift in identity, we don't know how it will impact us. And it does lead to difficulty with communication. 
And like you're saying, we need to figure out the roots behind of these difficulties. So a lot of times we brush it off and we say, okay, the first few months are a bit more difficult and babies are more needy and it will go away. But in essence, that's not exactly how it goes, because when there is an identity shift, the partner needs to shift with us and we need to be we need to be able to communicate our new needs. And a lot of times I find that we have a difficulty even knowing our own needs, honestly. And so the difficulty communicating them is not because I don't want to tell you as my partner what I need from you. It's that I myself keep denying myself what I need. I don't want to accept that I need to be in more flow. I don't want to accept that I am more tired and that I need support. So a great example of this is there's a woman that I uh, was working with who was lucky enough to have support from her husband, not as much as she would want, for sure. And he needed to also kind of digest what was happening. It was a very new experience for him as well. But she also had her mom coming in. And this is something quite typical in Greece, but also in other countries where there is that opportunity much more often than in other countries I've seen that you get to have the in-laws or the mother come in and be able to help. And even though she had this kind of help, she refused to accept it. She had a very needy baby and she was hardly sleeping, but it felt to her that she should be able to do it all. And so she would subject herself to trials that she did not have to experience as a way to prove her worth as a woman and as a mother, that I should be able to handle it. How do, there, there was this one question that was so interesting to me. How do single mothers do it? If they can do it, why can't I? And my answer to that was they can and you can, but at what cost? So a single mother, of course, she can do it and it's admirable, but at a cost to her. And since you happen to not be a single mother, then you happen to have your mother being able to help why do you have to do it? So this, like you were saying, is much more deep-seated. It goes back to acceptance, self-acceptance, self-compassion, and my worth being attached to external proof that I'm only worthy if others can see that I can handle everything. It's amazing. Like, I almost get the goosebumps hearing you say that because I know the audience can't see me, but I'm just nodding my head because the reading that I've been doing I realized that a lot of my own desires to do it all is because generationally, there are a lot of people in my family who haven't taken care of their own children. And so when I have glimpses in my head of if I'm not able to do it, does that make me just like these people in my life who I desperately don't want to be like? please understand that this is not something I understood six years ago. This is something that over the past three children and doing my own work, I've come to discover. And I think that's why your work is so beautiful. And you speak so eloquently about this. And I can feel women probably just the same, same feelings I'm getting of just the goosebumps because it is, it's such this difficult transition. And that doesn't also mean it's not beautiful. I think there's almost this shift too of you're talking about the difficulties in that transition and we're focusing so much on social media and other platforms that that's a difficult and hard and motherhood and parenthood is so burdensome. And don't get me wrong, it is hard and difficult, but it's also, I wish that we could see a little bit of the beauty in those transitions and the beauty in those transitions with our partners as well. Does that make sense? Like, I wish we could see rather than saying, oh, my transition with my partner of becoming a parent 
has been so hard on our relationship and so difficult and so awful in many instances, rather than looking at it like, yep, we have made these patterns and shifts in our relationship and it's a beautiful transition and it's difficult and it's hard, but we're going to get through it together. Yeah, because everything presents an opportunity. And so this this thing that we're talking about, it has a name. It's called matrescence. And it purposely sounds like adolescence because it's the second time that we get to experience that huge hormonal shift, physical changes and emotional mood swings that we allow teenagers to have, but because we don't know about matrescence enough. And this is why I I try to, to talk about it as much as possible and raise awareness on this issue, because I think that if we knew about it a little bit more, we would start to be more understanding towards women and the process that they're going through as they become mothers. All of this, like women will be shamed if they have mood swings. And if I don't have postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety or something that's diagnosable, then I'm not really allowed to feel anything but joy. But at the same time, I get what you're saying about social media. So there's the other end of the spectrum where you just get messages about motherhood being difficult and motherhood being hardship and a struggle. And honestly, in my social media, I a lot of times get stuck on how to post and what to say because I don't want it to ever come off as negative. So on the one hand, I want to discuss the struggles openly, but at the same time, I worry that am I raining on people's parade? Am I showing the joys enough? So I want to help women deal with, for example, the guilt. For instance, that's an emotion I never felt before. I never felt guilty or shameful. I was very conscious about this, that, you know, if I did something wrong, I'm going to apologize. If I did it and at the moment that I was doing it, I had a purpose, then, okay, maybe it's wrong now that I think of it. But why feel shame about something? Right. And I would just apologize if I felt it was wrong and move on. But guilt kind of struck me the minute that I became a mom. So I want to help mothers get past these kinds of feelings. But at the same time, imagine that if this is all that I'm talking about and on my Instagram, there are times that I feel like, how can I kind of incorporate? You're right. We need to show the joyful part. And that's something that I've been trying to focus on, that change is uncomfortable. Change is uncomfortable, yes. Exactly. So when you want, let's say, to leave your current job and go to another one, you want it. You're getting, let's say, a higher pay and it's a nicer job with, like, you know, a higher ceiling. And so you do it. But there's so many people that will say, but I'm getting uh, psychosomatic symptoms and I'm getting the jitters and I was throwing up the first day at my new job. And everybody's like, why? You should be excited. It was your choice. You did it. Our brain is programmed to want to keep us stable. It's a safety mechanism. And so motherhood could be the end of your relationship or it could be the flourishing of your relationship and all that's in between. It's a transitional part. It's a huge change. And if we perceive it in the way that you said it, that we see it as an opportunity to learn more about our partner, to grow deeper communication, then this transition can actually lead to something much more beautiful. I'll share too, because you mentioned the psychosomatic portion, and that's something I've always been really interested in. And one thing that I've learned, and this is going, maybe people don't understand or want to believe this, but I was looking into Chinese medicine of where we start to feel pain based on what feelings we have. And I was experiencing a lot of left upper quadrant pain 
And do you know what the Chinese medicine will tell you? Which feeling it is? Resentfulness for someone in your life or resenting something. And I held a lot of resentment. Sorry, resentment's the better word for my partner. And by recognizing that I resented a lot of his freedom, I guess, because I'm a breastfeeding mom too. I love breastfeeding. Absolutely. But at the same time, there is a little bit of resentment there that he could be separated for hours or days or whatever from the baby. And I could not. And that is, I guess, hard to say out loud, but it has been a huge part of our healing because the reason that we've talked about it is he has wanted to separate at times because he wants to continue hobbies because he sees now that his father doesn't have a ton of hobbies because all he's done is work in his life. Like his dad just works, you know, sometimes seven days a week constantly. And it's interesting being able to pull from him. Okay, this is why he does these things. This is why he needs his separate time. And I need to acknowledge, okay, this is what he feels is appropriate or what he needs for his body and his mind and his health. And I have hold resentment for that, but it's because I am envious of that freedom. So I just wanted to mention that because not everyone will understand what that psychosomatic piece is, but whenever I would feel a lot of anger or resentment, I would feel it in my body. I believe you had said, and I put in the introduction, that you have a more integrative approach. So do you talk to women about that psychosomatic response? And is there like a therapy piece that you add to that? Like if you're feeling, for me, for example, every time that I'm feeling this and I get this left upper quadrant pain, are you working to break that cycle? Definitely. We work on on the psychosomatics for sure. It's one thing that I've always taken into account. I feel it's really important. It, it says a lot. I don't know about the Chinese medicine and the precise pains in the areas. Now you've got me very intrigued. I'm <laughs> Just look that. into it because I'd be curious if you look and a woman says, I always get headaches and where, okay, if it's their head, is there a specific feeling? I know that's really kind of thinking out there, but it's really been a beautiful connection for me. So yes, keep going, but you should look into it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, that was the first thing that I was going to check, honestly, because for me, my cycle, the, the, the thing that stops me in my tracks, and it started when I started working at my first job, my first official long-term job was in the beginning allergies. And so I've noticed that I do have allergies as a person. And apparently from my child's pediatrician, I learned a week ago that there is a gene that you get that's like, you know, you get the allergic gene and apparently I passed it on to my son. And so I obviously have that. However, whenever I get overburdened, overstressed, overworked, the first thing that will happen is that suddenly my allergies spike up. So that's not a coincidence. And no. then... I, when I figured out how, what medication would make it stop because it was very intense, when I finally found medication and I wouldn't stay home because of an intense allergy attack, my body created migraines, mind splitting migraines. And so that was my body's way of saying, you've got to take a break. Because at that point, I, I was working, I would leave the house at 7.30 a.m. and I would come back at 10.30 and then I would cook. And it was at the beginning of, of my relationship with my husband. And I would then go visit him and see him and then come back. I don't know how I was doing it and why <laughs> I was subjecting myself to that torture. But yeah, psychosomatics, definitely. Your body starts to tell a story. And that's definitely the next thing that I am tapping into in my own training. I really want to do somatics and embodiment. 
because our Western culture focuses a lot on the mind. Mm. And there's a lot that our body can tell us, kind of like the, the book that probably most of your listeners know, The Body Keeps the Score. It's been talked about quite a bit recently. And so your body keeps, for example, the trauma. We were talking about the generational trauma before. We may have worked in therapy for years and have dealt with a lot of things. However, why do they keep coming up every once in a while? They're trapped in our body and they haven't been dealt there. So that's why I like to have an integrative approach. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people understand that. A lot of women understand that psychosomatic piece. And I don't expect them to at two weeks postpartum or anything like that. This has been a deeper journey, but I, I'm really interested in that work as well. And going off of that, and from what I'm learning and reading, if you have expressions of that generational trauma, you can do the work to heal it. And I think that's really important to say that because we keep talking about generational trauma. And I don't want people to feel like a victim of that. And you just have to accept that. Um, so is that correct? And where does one start with that? Is that something I really consciously have tried to work on calming my nervous system? And I, I feel like nervous system is kind of a hot word right now. Everyone's saying, calm your nervous system, calm your nervous system. And it's a lot deeper than just not drinking caffeine in the morning and like going out and getting some sunlight for a lot of people. It's a lot deeper. But I wanted you to have a moment to talk about that. What are the some of the steps, I guess, for someone looking for, okay, I, I know this about myself and I feel very on edge all the time. Where do I even begin with that? The, the nervous system is a hot word. And just like most things that are trending, in a sense, it's misunderstood and it's overused and wrongfully used, kind of like you know, I'm depressed. When I, when people just want to say that they're very sad or that they're low, they, they just throw around the word depressed. When we talk about calming the nervous system, we're talking about being able to slowly let go of certain triggers that suddenly spike us up. And generally, when we're talking about being in a state where the nervous system is not calm, it's because we are in alert, in that fight or flight kind of response all the time. So we think we're in danger all the time. Generational trauma may not necessarily be something that is keeping us on alert all the time. However, in this case, it's a deeper trigger, very, very subconscious, because usually it's passed down in a very, I don't know if the word is, is right, like subliminal way. Subliminal has some intention to it. What I'm trying to say is that it's passed down subconsciously from our own parents. They don't realize they're passing it down. They don't want to pass it down. It may even be in our genes. So when we're talking about generations that have been immigrants and they've the, the, the generations before that have experienced famine and they've experienced war and feeling not safe and not having a shelter, these are the kinds of things that are passed down through the stories that we hear, through the stories that we tell. But even the science... Epigenetically. Is, yeah, epigenetically. Exactly. Yes. Science yeah. is talking about epigenetics and the, it's passed down in our genes, even if we don't necessarily talk about it. There are studies that show that parents that wouldn't, I, I can't remember, it was very interesting. But basically what it said was that parents would not talk about the event. It was cultural that they didn't want to, to discuss what had happened to their children, but the children still showed manifestation of that trauma. So the, this, the epigenetics is a real thing. So what can we do about it? Is that something that we're stuck with? No, we can work on this through work 
with, with ourselves through, first of all, starting to notice what's happening both in our mind and in our body. The body is something that we've learned to ignore. We see it as a means to an end. It just takes us places. But one thing that my coach told me, and it made me kind of, it was a slap in the face at some point. She was like, you know, think about your car and just like visualize your car across from you right now. And so I, you know, I made a picture of my car and she's like, if you treated your car the way that you treat your body, meaning ignored it as much as you ignore your body and you just used it to take you places, in what state do you visualize your car being now? And I was like, ah, it probably has like ripped tires. It's, it's clunky. It's, it's not really working. It probably is missing windows. <laughs> And she's like, okay, well, now you see. And and I was crying at that point, uh, bawling my eyes out. So getting in touch with that generational trauma is something that's quite difficult. And this is why, in this case, counseling and therapy is warranted, not because we can't do it ourselves, but because certain things, our brain is trying very hard to keep them down. It doesn't want to have to deal with it. It's a safety mechanism. It's not going against us. It's trying to to help us in that moment. So the reason why therapy in this case helps is that you're in a safe environment and you know you have an expert that's ready to hold that pain and to help you deal with it. Whereas if we're alone, our subconscious and our brain will try to kind of push it down because it doesn't want us to, you know, be overstimulated and not being able to deal with it. So another thing just to point out is how do we listen to our body? First of all, our mind, we notice the triggers. So if I start, for instance, if I just get very angry and start screaming, which is not like me, I can note it down and say, okay, what happened there? What did I think? What was the situation? And so that's one way you can figure out the trigger. And then in our body as well. So if we start listening to our body a little bit more, and that can happen by, let's say, just going in with the intention to do some meditation, one, even one minute a day just to get in touch with our body just a little bit to train our brain that now we're slowly starting to to allow our body to express itself, to say how it feels, and then to kind of notice, oh, there was a knot in my stomach when that person said that. I didn't necessarily get angry or feel triggered, but my stomach reacted. When I was at the brink of leaving that job that I was telling you, I had too much information. I had diarrhea every single day before going to work, every single day. And I never had issues with my bowel. Mm. So it was very indicative, going back to the psychosomatics, it was very indicative of like, there's something really wrong and my body is, is talking to me. It's saying something. And then after we figure out from the mind triggers and what the body is telling us, then we can slowly, through that awareness start to question, what is it that I want for myself now? It's such a, I think it's a harrowing journey. I think when people hear this, it's hard to accept that it's also not an instant fix, but we're so uncomfortable with sitting with ourselves sometimes and sitting with the uncomfortable. But I will say I, one of my responses when I get anxious is it hits my stomach instantly. And it's a very particular pain or feeling in my stomach. My mother has the same one. And I don't think that's by chance. And my problem is that when it happens, because now when things happen with my kids, it's to the point of, you know, it sends me almost into a panic and it takes a lot of time to come down. 
but I only share that because I love to share to, to teach. And for me, when I'm having these moments, I actually will, in if it's the middle of the night, kind of close my eyes and say, Holly, this is what's happening to your body. This is why it's okay. And it will pass. And that seems so minuscule in the moment of a panic, but it does help me to say, recognize your stomach is reacting to something. You are okay. You are safe. And you will get through this. And it's it's a mind game. Psychosomatic response is so strong for some women. And I just hope that they can identify it. And then, as you said, a lot of people do need to work. Uh, I've had many counselors in my life. I don't have one at the, t- at the moment. But a lot of times we do need counseling to help break that. And that's okay, too. Yeah. What you're doing basically is you're creating safety. You're telling your mind that this might feel very painful, very uncomfortable right now. It might feel like the end of the world, but you're coming out of it. So you are creating a safer environment because part of what's happening is you feeling unsafe. And that is why it's working. At a deeper level, it's important to to then slowly kind of question, when did this happen? Why did it happen? Did something trigger it? What could have been the root cause of this? What fear is lying there? A lot of times there's a fear in all of this. Fear of being rejected, fear of dying, because we all have that one to a certain degree or not fear of not being loved. There are so many things. So then when we figure that out, and sometimes we, it's hard to figure it out because it seems to our minds, it seems completely irrational. Like, why would I fear that? But, you know, you start to listen to your body and you start to explore and it comes up. And as irrational as it may be, it may be the explanation. Yeah, it's just a beautiful thing to think about. I don't, uh, you articulated again so well, but I do want to pivot a bit because you mentioned to me, another thing you love to talk about is mom brain and how we can use it to our advantage. So I want you to talk about that, what you mean by that, and how we can reframe mom brain into a positive, because we kind of jokingly amongst friends and people I've heard like, oh, it's just mom brain, and we joke about it. But how can we use mom brain to our advantage? I'd love to hear you chat about that too. Yeah, well, there's actually research that talks about how our brain's neurons actually change as we become mothers. Mom brain often gets a bad rap, but if we reframe it, we can see it as an adaptive mechanism. So this research that I was talking about indicates that mothers often experience changes in areas of the brain that control empathy, how we deal with stress, managerial skills, and social interaction. So while we might be more forgetful of where we left our keys, and that's where like, ah, you know, it's mom brain comes in, research shows that we are better at understanding and interpreting our child's needs. We become naturals at working under pressure and stress, and we handle time and space much better. And what I find most fascinating is that scientists have seen neural pathways from which there's a shift in thinking from the individual perspective to a collective one. This is, you know, it's very cheesy by now to say that um, the line that we hear, ah, you know, you become a mother and you shed your ego. It's not necessarily that easy. And so we brush it off. But the brain is actually rewiring so that we're more attuned to the collective good. And that's because we care about improving and sustaining a world where our children and their children and their children's children can survive and thrive long after we are gone. So essentially, our brain is 
reshaping itself to make us more equipped for the challenges of motherhood. You're saying that's a neural pathway yes. that we can yes, see. Yes, yes, yes. We can wow. see that. And it actually happens to partners as well. But for partners, it's not permanent, whereas for the mother, it is. And for partners, for it to actually really work, they have to be super present at the very beginning stages. And so how, I guess, tangibly, though, so if you're saying, how is that benefiting us if we're forgetting where our keys are? Are you saying it's because that neural pathway has changed so much to help us and assist us in other parts of our lives, other parts of our life that the keys become not a necessity? Basically, yeah, we we learn on the hierarchy of needs is where my keys are. And so I've changed my neural pathways that I can be more present with my child or something else going on. It's almost like a, I don't know, almost an ADHD type shift. It almost sounds like I guess you could say it that way. Yeah. What happens is, in my opinion, as I read what I'm reading, so this is not necessarily documented, but as I put these things together, what happens is that we are overridden, overflushed with so much emotion and our attention is so much onto our child and to emphasize. And always the brain gives attention to emotion first and foremost. And that's why, for example, you're in an exam, you've studied, you know all your stuff, and then suddenly, boom, it's gone. You don't remember any of it. That's because you're anxious. It's not that you forgot anything. It's right there. And that's why when you walk out of the classroom, you're finally, you're kind of like, I remember now the answer. Well, why could I remember it when I was writing? That's because when you were in the classroom with the exam in your hands, you were so anxious that your brain just shifted all the attention to taking care of the anxiety because it doesn't know if you're being chased by a lion who's going to eat you. Or if this is just just an exam, you're not going to die. So your brain doesn't know the difference. So you're super anxious and it just focuses there to help you survive. You forget all your stuff like cognitive ability at that point becomes secondary. Your reptile brain kicks in. So in the same way, mom brain is that kind of I am focused on my baby, the survival and its needs and the emotional bond and everything that's going on between us. And at the same time, you become trained to prioritize different things. So the keys are important when you are trying to go out because you want to be able to come back in. But at the same time, there are so many other things that are so much more important and take up more brain space. But why I say this about mom brain is that you can see it from the way that women are treated in the workspace because mom brain gets such a bad rap that women are not expected to be able to deal with things because they're they're forgetful of their keys. Just because you're forgetful of your keys and certain things like that doesn't mean that you're incapable of being focused and dedicated while at work. And this is why I mentioned the managerial part, being able to prioritize, being able to connect, because most jobs that you do, you connect with people, being able to connect with people at a deeper level and empathize. These are things that should be rewarded A woman shouldn't be kept from going up the ranks because of mom brain. She should be given promotions because of mom brain. Well, it's like the deeper empathy. I used to tell real quick, when I left my job, I told my, he was an an elder provider and I loved him, but he was much older. And I told him that the reason that I couldn't have 20 minute visits is because they would, he would go into a room and he was wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But, and a mother would go in ask their questions. If they had little questions, he'd do an exam and he'd be done. I would go in and a mother would cry. And I had such a deep level of empathy when I became a mother that I could so deeply empathize with that postpartum experience. And I use that to my advantage when I was a nurse practitioner. 
I use that to my advantage, but that's why I couldn't have 20 minute visits because I needed longer times with those mothers because I had transitioned and they knew that they, my, a lot of my patients knew I had transitioned into being a mother. So they knew I could empathize so much deeper. And so from an external managerial position, they could say, oh, Holly takes, she's always behind and she takes so much more time and she always gets, you know, again, she always gets behind. Well, yes, she always gets behind, but it's because her level of empathy is so high because she's now a mother. And so it's beautiful to hear you say that. Um, yeah. And then when you think about it, even in terms of like, let's take motherhood out of it. This is customer service. Who's who's going to come back? The the mother that felt like, oh, 20 minutes and you're out and I didn't listen to your feelings. I just took care of the practical things or the mother that felt like somebody held me here. Somebody embraced my difficulty and understood me and empathized with me. Yes, it took more time. But in the end, even if you see it in just numbers and and dollars, you're going to get people that are loyal to you because of that kind of service. Well, if someone's listening who's corporate, I want them to hear that again because I think that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I um, so we've talked for quite a while, and I, uh, which has been beautiful, but I want to give you a moment to also talk about what you've pivoted. And now you're going to be offering coaching services, I believe, for women. So I want to give you a moment to talk about your transition of what you're going to be offering people and your business. Just give us some information about yourself. We are going to, I'm obviously going to link your social media, your webpage, all of those things, how to contact you. But what is your business and what are you going to be offering for families? Yeah, so I have pivoted, but it's not like a huge pivot. So I've been a counseling for over 15 years. And uh, honestly, I guess it was kind of like it was meant to happen in this way that most of my clients were women and most of the things that we were working on were empowerment, assertiveness, self-confidence, all these things. So the pivot that I'm making now is into motherhood, but it's not completely irrelevant. What I do now, so what I offer now is motherhood coaching. And obviously, at a deeper level, given my counseling and clinical psychology background, mm -hmm. that happens in private coaching and even better in small group sessions. I think that mothers need to be connecting with one another. A lot of times they'll want to see me privately, but I, I try to slowly get them ready to be able to share these things in front of other women. Because what ultimately most women seek is a community. And it's very important that we build a non-judgmental, safe sisterhood. I would say, amongst ourselves, a circle, if you will. And so in that spirit, I offer the individual sessions, but also the small group. And soon I'm going to be launching a membership for moms for two reasons. One is that the common ask is community. And I know that it will be very impactful to be with women that are like-minded and can openly share this kind of experience. And also the, the other reason is that I want to give an option that is more accessible than the session format. One mom had shared with me that in her country of residence, it was great. She was offered actually after giving birth free sessions in the hospital that she gave birth where she could meet up with other women that gave birth around the time that she did. And this was free and the hospital was hosting the space and you could go. And she told me it was great. I attended. I kept on going. However, there was no expert of any sort leading the conversation. Mm. And so she was describing how sometimes it felt like I am entering this conversation. Some women are very stressed about something that happened to their baby. Then I start to wonder, will that happen to my baby? 
there is no one offering a solution because maybe it just so happens that other women have also not experienced it or have not found a solution. So then you get two, three women jumping in and saying, oh, yeah, this is awful. This is this what's happening. And there's nobody there to kind of guide the conversation. It's like a Facebook and... group gone wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so she was telling me that I would have loved to have the kind of support where you can basically have the moms leading the conversation, but an expert present to be able to kind of help around those things. So this is why I'm creating the membership. Well, that's wonderful. I'm I'm excited for you and excited to see that. I would love to have a, a space for women that you're describing. I'm assuming they're virtual because they're probably going to be women from all over the world. Yes. Yes. So it is it's virtual. And, you know, the, the whole point is to have uh, babies being around if they have to be around. The whole point is to make the experience easy for a mom to be able to attend because there's there's this whole thing, take care of yourself going around and then it just becomes another thing on our to-do list and another thing that we fail at as mothers. Ah, yeah, you know, I should be doing self-care. I'm not doing that. And it's all about doing when motherhood kind of is trying to pull us into a being state. So the the whole idea is, there would be sometimes very specific times that, you know, I would be able to log on, of course, but it would be to make a kind of a shifting schedule, different weeks, different times so that other mothers can enter whenever they're available at a time that's most available to them. So there is some kind of a schedule, but the whole point is it's from your home. And if you need to breastfeed while you're in there, you can breastfeed, you can be there. And if your toddler keeps walking in and talking, it's totally fine. So that we can make it realistic. Like, you know, I dedicated some time to myself. How much was that? 15 minutes? Was I able to go 30 minutes? Was it with the, the baby in my life? It's fine, but I did it. It's yeah, something. It, it's like you're creating the village when everyone says it takes a village. And then you'll have your little village and they can't be there to help you with your baby, but help you support you emotionally. Self-care, that would be a whole other uh, podcast. Maybe we could do a follow-up <laughs> at some point all about motherhood and self-care, but that's wonderful. So I will include all of that information too in the show notes, but thank you so much for being here today. I, this was beautiful. You are so, you speak so eloquently. So I'm really excited for what you have planned for women. I think it's wonderful and beautiful. So thank you so much for meeting with Thanks. me today. It was it was my honor to be here with you. This was a, a lovely conversation. Thank you for giving me the platform and the opportunity to talk about these things. Oh, you're welcome. If you come back someday, we'll have to do all one on self-care because I bet that's a 45 minute conversation in itself. Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> because I've got some very strong emotions about how self-care is marketed to women. Yeah. And yeah. mothers especially. All right. Part two then coming. Thank you for listening in today, and I hope you'll be back. Stay curious, stay humble, and always lead with empathy. Please also take a moment to share this episode with someone, this podcast, write a review or comment on my latest Instagram post at hollylogan underscore help. Thank you. Have an awesome day.